you have your Bibles, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. It's also found on page 834 in the Pew Bibles. And so if you are visiting us and do not own a Bible, we would encourage you to take that as a gift from us. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. For yourself, do you remember the glory days, whatever they may be for you? Could be back when you were in high school or college and you had more free time. You were probably in the best physical shape. You probably had more margin for ministry and so you were leading Bible studies and pouring into people. Could be after college where you felt like you were one of the sharpest employees at your job or at the very beginning of the years in marriage when you had more time with your spouse. What were they for you? Glory days is that we tend to remember them, we rejoice in them, and then there's a desire to return to them. And what's also implicit about the glory days is this idea that we think that our best days are behind us and not ahead to them. Well, in this morning's passage, Habakkuk, he does some recalling of his own. He remembers God's work in saving Israel and judging their enemies. And he begins to request for God to do it again. You see, when we look back, as it relates to the glory days, we think that the best days are behind us, but for Habakkuk, though the situation is bleak, he looks back and remembers God's works, he remembers God's word and his promises, and he knows that Israel's best days are not behind them, but are ahead as he awaits this future deliverance. You see, as he looked back at all that God did in the past, he had the perspective of, since God did it before, he can do it again. And so Habakkuk chapter 3, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, according to Shiginoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him, and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Cushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea? When you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot. You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. 
The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear, you march across the earth. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. You may be seated. And so our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Recalling God's previous works should cause us to trust him and wait on him. Recalling God's previous works should cause us to trust him and wait on him. In this passage, we have three scenes. First, we will see Habakkuk's requests. Then we will see him recall God's glorious coming. And we'll see him remember God's salvation. First, we see his request. Then him recall God's glorious coming and remember God's salvation. And what Habakkuk does in this passage is instructive for us. Because if we're going to navigate a fallen world where we experience difficulties and distress, where we experience and witness suffering and injustice and pain and oppression, then, beloved, we must be a people who pray. We must remember, must hope in the future return of Christ Jesus. So for a little bit of context, in chapter 1, the prophet, he complained about injustice taking place in Judah. As God's covenant people were unfaithful, this holy nation looked more like pagans. He complained, and then the Lord responded with the sinning of Babylon, making known that God is at work, that Babylon would be his instrument of justice and judgment on Judah. Habakkuk heard it, and then he complained again. Y'all, he was hard to please. So he complained about God's works as he's perplexed and confounded by what God was doing. And God responded with another revelation, making known that the wicked will be judged, that the righteous are to live by faith. And he gives five woes, making known that he will bring about retributive justice on the wicked and Babylon in particular. This brings a quest. You see, Habakkuk, he heard from God. He was humbled by God's power and his justice. He comes to know that the wicked will not escape and that future glory awaits those who are faithful, who trust in the Lord. And so he responded to this revelation with a prayer of praise and supplication. And this took place in song. where It was a celebration in the midst of adversity. Praising God despite the hardship that is upon them. 
This song will be sung by Israel as they were in exile, as it gave hope to them in the midst of their hardship, as they experienced God's judgment upon them for their covenant unfaithfulness. This song was likely sung in the minor key, as it ministered to them in the midst of their pain. Songs like, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. Where it doesn't suppress the reality of the difficulty, but it elevates one's hope to God in the midst of it and strengthens one to endure the pain that they're currently experiencing. Verse 2, he says, Lord, I heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. This is the third time Habakkuk has approached the Lord, that he's praying, and here his tone is different. In the God, and here we see reverence of God. He went from accusation to adoration. The thing is, he's in the same situation. And yet, he has a different disposition. Y'all, what did it for him? How does one go from pointing their finger at God to raising their hands in awe of him? The key is revelation. Look at verse 2. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. You see, in our trials, our temperament can change when we have a right view of God. When we remember his character, his ways, and his works through his word. And we read his word and hear his word by faith. Beloved, this is why we need to be in the word. This is why we need to remind one another of God's works and his promises. For it strengthens us to trust him in our discouragement and distress. Beloved, in our pain, one of the things, you see, in our pain, we are prone to close our Bibles and isolate ourselves from God's people. And y'all, that will only lead to distress and despair. It will not lead to hope. You see, it is in our pain and distress that we need shelf. Instead, we need to put our face in the text. We need to hear God's word, hide his promises in our heart, and meditate on them. And we need to be around his people. For it's through his word and his people that God uses to comfort us in our pain. It helps us to have a proper view on what we're experiencing and a hope in the promises that he has given. Beloved, are you dwelling in the word, especially in seasons of difficulty? Look at verse 2. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Now, commentaries differ on what Habakkuk is talking about in this verse. Some say that he's referring to the works that the Lord has made known throughout the book earlier. Others say that he's referring to the works of salvation for Israel and judgment on their enemies in the past. Y'all, I wrestled with this quite a bit. I'll just make known. Cards on the table. I lean the latter. I lean that he's referring to God's previous works of salvation for Israel and judgment on their enemies. And the reason why I believe that is because of the context. In the very next part of verse 2, he says, Revive your work in these years, pretty much pleading for God to do it again. 
And then the next section, he begins to unpack some of the works that God did, alluding to God's intervention on Israel's behalf. In verse 16, when he says, I heard and I trembled within, I believe here he's referring to what God revealed to Habakkuk. And in verse 2, what we see is that revelation not only results in reverence, but it also shapes our requests. He says, revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. Twice Habakkuk is begging for God to do it again. This is parallelism where he is saying the same thing in a different way. And he emphasizes the timing. Did you see it? He says, in these years, pretty much in his generation, God, I heard what you did for Israel in the past in delivering them from oppression in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land and delivering them from their enemies. God, I want to see you do it again as it relates to Babylon. Deliver us from our enemies and destroy this pagan nation. He's because God has done it before. Beloved, do you pray like this? Do the testimonies of God's previous work compel you to praise him and to plead for him to do it again? When was the last time you and? You see, we read and hear of his testimonies, how God saves people in advancement of the gospel, the raising up of missionaries, how God provides for people, how he rescues people from being ensnared in sin, how he has healed people, how he brings back the wayward child. How he gives peace in the midst of difficulty and contentment and hardship. Beloved, we've heard of these testimonies. We've read of these testimonies. Are we praying for God to do it again? If so, praise God. If not, why not? For God hasn't changed. He is our loving Father. You see, these previous works that God has done should lead us to praise him, and it should lead us to pray, trusting in him and submitting to him in his will. Habakkuk asked for God to do it again, and Habakkuk had another request. He says, in your wrath, remember mercy. He was pleading for God to bring judgment up to be judged first. That what precedes God destroying Babylon is God disciplining and judging Judah for their covenant unfaithfulness. He heard from God that judgment is certain, so he is submitted to the will of God, and he pleaded for God to have compassion, fight their guilt. He knows that there is no defense that he has, and so he appeals to the mercy of God. God, have mercy on us in the midst of judging us. And, beloved, the only way that you and I can be spared from judgment is if God has compassion. Our works won't do it. Our net worth or network, our parents' faith, none of it can exempt us from his judgment. If we're going to be rescued from God's wrath, it will solely be by God's mercy. And the wonderful thing is that God is merciful. He has compassion. He answered Habakkuk's prayers. He spared a remnant. As he is faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham, to David, and to bringing about the new covenant, 
One may wonder, well, how is it possible for God to be both merciful and just? Well, it's possible because he has revealed that about himself. Think about Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where he, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he will go on to say, who will by no means clear the guilty. God is merciful and he is just. See, I've heard I say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, to which I would say, man, people who say that, you haven't properly studied the Old Testament at all. Because if you were to properly study the Old Testament, you will come to the conclusion that God is holy, that God is loving, that he is faithful, that he is merciful. And that he is just. As you read the Old Testament, there are numerous examples of God dispensing mercy upon the undeserving while pouring out his just judgment on the guilty. Call Adam and Eve. As God gave them the command to not eat fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, they rebelled against God. Sin has separated them from God and God came to them. He responded not, with just, not by annihilating them. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the ground. And he gave them a promise that Eve would have a son who would reverse the curse. He covered their nakedness all in his love and his mercy upon those who don't deserve it. Next, I will call Noah to the witness stand. As sin is pervading the earth, as God made known that the hearts of humans are only continuously evil, God declared that he will judge the earth because of man's rebellion, and yet God in his mercy has spared Noah and his family, telling Noah to build a boat and sparing them from the waters of God's judgment. It wasn't because Noah deserved it, but it was because God chose to be merciful. Let me go ahead and call another witness to the stand, the entire nation of Judah. As they persistently rebelled against God in covenant unfaithfulness to him. And God was patient. In the midst of their rebellion, God promised a new covenant where he will forgive their sins, where they will be his people and he will be their God. God made known that he would bring Babylon to judge them, and yet he did not annihilate the entire nation. He had mercy and spared a remnant because he is faithful to his promise. And the ultimate example of God in wrath showing mercy is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where judgment and yet God in his mercy and his love for us sent his son. As he walked this earth as a man and on the cross he bore the wrath that we deserve. On the cross, the sinless one was treated as a sinner that all of us who are in Christ have ever committed so that we can be forgiven. The cross testifies, is the ultimate proof as it shows God's judgment and his mercy. As Christ died for our sins and now there is no wrath reserved for us. How do we know this to be true? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
He says, now no condemnation. Not some condemnation, but it says no condemnation. We sung about it. As it said, it was. We are completely forgiven by his grace. I understand for some of us, it's hard for us to grasp this reality. Because when we sin, we feel the guilt and the shame of it. We fear that God may not be merciful towards us. We fear that he might be done with us because if we were God, then we would be done with us. For his arms are open and he is merciful and gracious. He forgives. You see, on the cross, he remembered mercy. He will not forget it now. And so if you're feeling this way, what I would say is don't withdraw from God, but draw near to him in confession and repentance, knowing that he is gracious to forgive. For Habakkuk, this revelation, it resulted in adoration and supplication. May know, God, if you did it before, you can do it again. Y'all, if we're going to trust God and wait well, then we must be a people who pray. Our prayers are great indicators as it reveals our dependence upon him. See, there's a correlation between praying constantly and waiting well on God. Where our prayers are absent Impatience and despair are both present. Constantly praying to the Lord and seeking him. What's also present is love for God and people. A humility before God. A hope in his promises. A contentment in the difficult situations. A trust in the Lord and a peace that transcends all understanding. Beloved, do you pray? Here we see Habakkuk praying. We see his request. And now let's see him recall God's glorious coming. You see Habakkuk, he pleaded for God to remember mercy. And then he himself took a trek down memory lane. As he recalls God's interventions on Israel's behalf to save his people and destroy their enemies. In this section, he alludes to the acts of God's intervention throughout Israel's history. And it gave him hope in the midst of their situation. In this section, we'll see him recall previous theophanies. And a theophany is a visible appearance of God to humans. We know that God is spirit. As the Truth and Grace Catechism says, God is spirit. And although God is spirit, he does make visible appearances to his people. Think about the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Think about thunder on Mount Sinai or the cloud of fire, how he led Israel through the wilderness. Look at verses 3 through 5. God comes from Teman, the holy one from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. God, 
The God of heaven and earth is here depicted as on the move. The eternal one whose throne room is in heaven, he traversed from one realm to another, coming from heaven to earth as he came to rescue his people. It says he came from Teman, which is a district of Edom. It is southeast of Judah. And Mount Paran is an area full of mountains in the Sinai area. And here we see God, he is coming, and he came to deliver his people as he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And he's leading his people through these areas into the, all the way into the promised land. God came for his people. People are. He sees them in their distress. He hears their cries, and he comes on their behalf. Beloved, in our suffering, God does not stiff-arm us. He is not. Instead, he comforts us and he comes for us. He intervenes. It's easy for us to interpret the presence of pain to be God's absence and his apathy. Well, y'all, that is not true. God is with his people. Jesus made known to his very own disciples. He says, in this life, you will have trouble. God even made known through James the Apostle. He says, count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds. Beloved, being God's people does not preclude us from suffering and pain. Knowing that the Lord is merciful and gracious and compassionate does not exempt us from hardship. But it does assure us that he will comfort us. It does assure us that he will come for us. And in the new covenant, he is with us. He couldn't be closer, for he dwells within us through his spirit. He is a present help in time of need. You see, in our pain, God is not only sovereign over it, healing us in the midst of it, carrying us as we are going through it, working out his very purposes. And he will bring us to himself. Here we see God come. And how did he come? He came in his transcendent glory. It says the splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. He comes in his glory. He is so glorious that the human language is insufficient to fully describe him in his essence. We use similes. He is likened to light, the purest element because God is holy and completely pure. He is light and he dwells in unapproachable light. His might is so mighty that we can't even comprehend it. A small sample size of it is terrifying. His witnesses see it and they are alarmed, trembling in trepidation. Verse 5 says that plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. This alludes to him coming in judgment. Think about what took place in Egypt as he came on behalf of his people. How he judged Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and their gods. Don't miss this. He came to deliver his people. What he continued to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. 
He made known to Moses that he will deliver them and they will be brought out to Egypt, brought out of Egypt. He came to save because he is loving and he is faithful to his promise. He saw their oppression and he came to rescue them because they were his. Y'all, try to illustrate this somewhat. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my kids. My kids get on my nerves sometimes, but I still love them a whole lot. And y'all, I love them so much that if I were to see somebody or some people trying to harass and oppress my family, I will come to defend my family. And why? It's because I love them so much that my anger against anyone who tries to oppress and harm them will be aroused. Now, I might not win, but I'm going to come to defend because they're mine. It's my wife. These are my kids. And, y'all, if I feel that way about my family, how much more does God for his people when he sees the affliction that his people experience? He doesn't take that lightly. He doesn't ignore it. He will come in his love and in his justice where he will rescue his people and he will destroy and judge his enemies. He takes it personal because his people are his. He has put his name on them and he will avenge. And here we see God coming to judge his enemies and save his people. Verses 6 and 7, it speaks of the effect of his coming, how it impacts both nature and nations. It says he stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Cushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. No one else's coming or arrival has this. Not you, not the most popular social media influencer, not even the president. But when God steps on the scene, it impacts both nation, nature and nations. At his arrival, the permanence of creation is perceived breakable, begins to tear like paper. The immovable becomes lightweight. Nations respond with horror. They are horrified. This is what alludes to in verse 7, where he says, I see the tents of Cushan in distress. This alludes to Judges chapter 3, where as Israel was in the promised land, they rebelled against God. And then God raised up this pagan nation to enslave them. Well, Israel repented and cried out to God, and God rescued them, and God judged this nation. He says, in the tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble, the very same thing took place in Judges chapter 7, where God is coming on behalf of his people to rescue them and to destroy their enemies. You see, God comes, and when he does, The enemies of God tremble because he is God Almighty. None can withstand him. 
And for his enemies, there are no hope. They are speechless and doomed. For they opposed his people, and so he will oppose. Y'all, this picture is terrifying for his enemies, and it is comforting for his people. As we read this, it shouldn't cause us to tremble in great fear, but to be in awe and reverence, reading that God comes for. It's terrifying for his enemies, and his affections are comforting for his bride. He loves us. He defends us. He cares for us. And so Habakkuk, he remembered God's coming and intervention. As he recalled what God did in the past, it gave him hope in the present. And just as Habakkuk recalled, we too should do some recalling of our own. Beloved, we should remember God's testimonies. We should know them. And as we know them and remember them, it gives us strength to face the present problems that we're enduring. And we can face it with confidence, not in ourselves, but in God. Because of who he is and what he has done for us. As we remember his works and his promises, knowing that he is present with us. You see, recalling God's work gives us hope in the present as we anticipate the future. Testimonies of God's saving work and delivering work bolsters us to trust in him. And y'all, cards on the table, this is why. Because they have experienced hardships that I don't know about. They have experienced hardships that I'm unaware of. And yet they have testimonies of God's power, his comfort, the sufficiency of his grace, and his faithfulness. They are living witnesses in that he will get you through it. You see, as I hear their stories, it doesn't cause me to belittle my burdens, but to behold the greatness of our God. You see, that we are a young congregation, y'all, I would really exhort us to host the seasoned saints that we do have. Have them over into our homes and hear their testimonies. Ask them to share ways that God has intervened on their behalf, how he's delivered them and helped them and comforted them and strengthened them. And see how God uses that to build you up. See how God uses that to strengthen you in your present situation. We to have all the more hope in him, seeing that God is faithful. And we too must remember God's saving work on our behalf. We too must remember the ways that God has showed up and intervened for us. How he comforted us in our pain and past. How he delivered us. How he spared us and helped us. How he made a way where it seemed like there was no way. It causes us to trust God in the present. To look to him with hope and to await his future coming knowing that glory is coming. Well, Habakkuk, he not only recalled God's glorious coming, he remembered God's salvation, the work that God did when he showed up. In the end of the chapter, end of this passage, God is depicted as a divine warrior who steps on the scene. He rages war with Israel's enemies in the defense of his people. Look at verse 8. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? 
Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses your victorious chariot? This calls to mind what we read earlier, how God split the Red Sea, how he saved Israel, and how he chose for the Red Sea to come crashing upon Pharaoh and his enemies, bringing about deliverance and destruction. But it's not the only time when God did something like this. Think about with the Jordan River, how the Lord rolled it back so that Israel can walk on dry land into the promised land. Here we see that God is Lord of all creation. It submits to him. He employs creation as his weapons to accomplish. Look at verse 9 to 11. You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. God comes and makes war. And his enemies, they lose. They are no match at all. Even as Psalm, not Psalm, but Exodus chapter 15 11 said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And here we see that there is absolutely no one like the Lord. He comes and creation obeys his command. Verse 11, where it says that sun and moon stand still. This alludes to Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Well, as the Israelites are battling their enemies, Joshua requested for God to still the sun, keep the sun in the air. And the Lord did it for him as God froze the solar system for a whole day, stopped the cosmic merry-go-round and had the sun stay still for an entire day so that Israel could defeat their enemies. In the next two verses, we see why the Lord came. It says, you march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your him from foot to neck. You see, God, he comes to deliver his people and to demolish his enemies. And why? Well, it wasn't to shut up Israel. It wasn't because he was annoyed with them, but it's because he has affections for them as they are his people, and so he will protect and defend them and destroy their enemies. You see, before God's arrival, the enemies probably felt like they were about to get away with it. Israel probably felt forsaken, and yet the Lord steps in and he delivers. He saves. He says that he came to save his people, to save his anointed and the anointed here could be a descendant of David in light of God's covenant with David, that David will have a son who will sit on his throne forever. And God comes because he is faithful to his promises. As he has made covenant promises to Abraham and to David. Abraham, in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. To David, David will have a son who will sit on his throne forever. Well, God comes to rescue his people so that he can fulfill the promises that he has made. For every promise made is a promise kept, even when the situation looks bleak. Even when it looks like God has forgotten his promise, know that he has not. 
He will deliver on the promise because he is faithful. Beloved, this, as we see in this section, we see God coming to save his people. And it ultimately points us to the incarnation where the Son of God became man to save his people from their sins. He came to rescue, not out of compulsion, not because he he absolutely had to, because we forced his hand, but out of a love for us. He came to rescue us. And it wasn't because we loved him, but because he loved us. The Lord came not as a conquering king, but as a humble servant. His deliverance would not be through war, but through sacrifice. As Jesus died on the cross to save us. Beloved, we were enslaved to sin. And God came and delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he not only came to rescue us from sin's tyranny, he also came to rescue us from God's judgment. You see, we were God's enemies. And yet God had mercy upon us by sending his son to die for our sins. And as he bore the wrath of God on the cross and three days later resurrected so that we who trust in him could be forgiven and saved. You see, he came for his people and this salvation came through the anointed one. The promised king. Now we are reconciled to him through faith in Christ. If you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. As you can attest to, in this life, we will experience pain and distress and suffering. And some of our situations are so difficult for us that we need intervention. We need someone to come and rescue us, to help us. And that reality testifies to the fact that we are inadequate to save ourselves. And y'all, our problems in this life are real. You have an even greater problem. And that's the fact that you have rebelled against a holy and a righteous God. And as we have seen in the passage, he will come and he will judge. But we also see that God is merciful. And in his love, he sent his son to die for sins, to save all who would trust in him. And so, friends, I would implore you this very day to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Turn from your rebellion and be rescued from the wrath to come by believing in the son. If you want, we can talk more. You talk to any of the members after service, we love to have conversations about Jesus and the gospel. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, you pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, striking, stirring up the vast waters. Again, God, he comes to save. He comes to make war and to save his people. What's amazing about this section is that it testifies to God's love and care for his people. If we ever wonder, does God love us and care for us, the cross of Jesus Christ is the proof that the Lord came to save us. 
You see, for Habakkuk, he looked back. Remember God's glorious interventions in the present as he anticipated God's coming again to bring about an even greater exodus. And beloved, for us, we too are to look back. Look back at that hill called Calvary where Christ died for our sins and resurrected. We are to look in the scriptures, seeing that he has promised to return and await this glorious coming, where he will come again, not as a humble servant, but as a divine warrior. See, the very things that God did to his enemies in this passage, Jesus will do when he returns. Every enemy who has opposed his bride, he will crush and they will be his footstool. And for his bride, every wound that she has, he will bind up. Every tear she has cried, he will wipe away. We will dwell safe and secure because we will be with the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We will be with him for all of eternity. And so, beloved, may we wait well. Now, how are we to wait well? We're to be in God's word, reminding one another of his promises, recalling what God has done, and remembering the promise that Jesus has made. As he said at the very end, know that he is faithful to keeping that promise. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you are mighty, and you are gracious. God, you care for your people. You comfort us in our pain and distress. You draw near to us in the midst of it. You preserve us through it all, and you are bringing us to yourself. God, we praise you for your faithfulness to your promises that you haven't, and nor will you ever forget one. God, you are good. Father, help us to recall your promises. Help us to rejoice in them and hope for Christ's return, knowing that he is coming again soon. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name.